Welcome to the National Film Pod of Canada, the podcast with a different take on the movies. My name is George Kaplan. This is episode 5, where I talk about Canadians who went to Hollywood in the early days and made it what it is and what it was. As a way of continuing to talk about the early days of Canadian film, we are now going to talk about Canadians who moved to Hollywood at around the same time. That is to say, Canadians who, instead of working in Canadian movies, such as they were then, decided to go to Hollywood and try to make it there. And to do that, I'm going to use a book called Stardust and Shadows by Charles Foster. It was published in 2000, so it is a bit old, but since it's talking about people and events that happened literally a hundred years ago, uh, we can't call it outdated since the subject is already, well, dated. The author of the book, Charles Foster, first went to Hollywood on leave from the Royal Canadian Air Force during the Second World War. Because of the war, he was warmly welcomed by members of the Canadian film community there who opened their doors to him and introduced him to other Canadians, both famous and obscure. After the war, he opened offices in England and Hollywood as a publicist, representing many actors like Marilyn Monroe, Richard Burton, and Charlie Chaplin. His book, Stardust and Shadows, tells of all the Canadians he met in Hollywood and the lifelong friendships that he established with many of them during the years. The book details 16 Canadians who made their mark in the early days of Hollywood. I am not going to talk about all of them. I picked four out of the 16 that I consider important to talk about and remember. That's a subjective decision, of course, but I think you'll find them interesting. Here is a little-known fact. Edison wanted to publicize his new invention, the movie camera. So he wanted to film a scene from a then-popular play called The Widow Jones. And this was in 1896. One of the actors in that play was a Canadian actress called May Irwin, who already had a successful career on the Broadway stage and was also very popular. And May Irwin was born in Whitby, Ontario, so she qualifies as Canadian. So Edison got May and another actor to do a scene from the play, The Widow Jones, and the scene in question was a scene in which there was a kiss, and which lasted like 50 seconds. So this was a bit controversial, but remember, this was in the 19th century, 1896, so it didn't take much to get people going back in those days. Of course, this was a publicity stunt to advertise the new invention, the movie camera, and it worked. Edison got a lot of attention with this short film of a kiss. But the whole point of this is, uh, in mentioning this, is to remind people that in one of the earliest movies, 1896, the main star was a Canadian actress, May Irwin. As with everything, there's always a first time. 
and in the history of Hollywood movie stars, there had to be someone who would be the first truly global movie star, and that person was Canadian-born Mary Pickford. Uh, we are all familiar with some movie stars who have global appeal. There's a long history by now of people like that. But Mary Pickford was the very first. She was an actress in silent movies who actually made more than 190 movies in her career. She was a small woman, only five feet tall, but she had an almost magnetic effect on the camera. She started out as a child actor, then even as she grew up, she continued to play them until she couldn't. She, but she could play other parts and roles. She played like convent girls and mothers and so on. Because she started her career in silent movies, when sound came and pushed aside the silent films, it was obvious that she would be forgotten. But she was smart enough to realize this herself. And because she was also an astute businesswoman, she did not end up in poverty like most of her fellow silent movie actors. Part of her success, I think, is due to the fact that her early movies were made with silent uh, movie pioneer D.W. Griffith, who was probably the best filmmaker at that time. Her fans were devoted to her in ways that are hard to understand even today, probably because she was the very first movie star, and filmgoers had never before experienced the feelings they got from watching her, so their fandom was intense. A few examples here of what her fans said of her. A journalist of the day called her presence, quote, a flash of sunlight across a dark room, a white moth glimmering in the dusk, unquote. A critic invoked, quote, the spirit of spring imprisoned in a woman's body and compared her to the first child in the world, unquote. Another person said that they saw her reflection among Botticelli's muses in one of his paintings, and so on. Here's a bio of Mary Pickford. Gladys Mary Smith, a.k.a. Mary Pickford, was born in 1893 in Toronto, Ontario. After her father died, her mother, who had been an actress before marriage, went back to the theater to support the family. When Mary was only six months old, she was carried by her mother on the stage. And when she was seven, she was given her first speaking part on stage. And Mary was an instant hit. Her golden curls that she had until her thirties made her famous. And by the time she was ten, she was a stage veteran. She was known to audiences as Little Mary, and at the peak of her fame, she was dubbed America's Sweetheart. Along with her brother and sister, the Smith family, as they were known then, was also popular with the public. And later on, Little Mary adopted the stage name of Mary Pickford. For years, the Smith family toured small theater circuits in Ontario and northern U.S. In one of their stops in the U.S., Mary realized that that's where the family should be, so they took a chance and moved there in 1907. At first, they had difficulties finding work, 
Then Mary took charge and went to see a famous theatrical director of the time named David Belasco. Belasco liked what he saw in her and put her in a play called The Warrens of Virginia, and she got good reviews. So Pickford spent two years with Belasco in New York and on tour with his company. After arriving back from tour in the summer, the New York theaters were closed because of the heat, so no AC back then, though there was no work in theaters. But the motion picture studios were still open, so Mary went to the Biograph Picture Company with her family and auditioned for the movies and was hired. In two years, she played the lead in 73 Biograph films. She then moved to California and worked for Adolf Zukor and his studio Famous Players, and there her fame increased film after film. In 1920, she married Douglas Fairbanks Sr., a famous actor in silent films. They both became the first Hollywood celebrity couple, famous worldwide. And how famous were they? When they decided to honeymoon in Europe, they were mobbed by so many people that for security reasons, they had to hire 20 bodyguards to get through the crowds of their admirers. And here's another kind of fame. She was famous also for her hair. She had the long brown curls that I mentioned. And then in 1928, she cut her hair, and the New York Times put this news on their front page. In March 1920, she built her dream house and called it Pickfair, a house that was to be to become famous in Hollywood for all the people who came and went there. Decades later, when Pickford died, the Canadian government was urged to buy the house and turn it into a museum to tell the history not only of Pickford, but all other Canadians who had been part of Hollywood's glory days. But the government declined because they couldn't afford it. Before their honeymoon, the two had set up a new film company called United Artists. Along with uh, Charles Chaplin and Fairbanks, UA became famous for distributing films that were not always seen to be crowd-pleasers, allowing more options for filmmakers than having to rely on regular studios. It still exists today under another name called United Artists Releasing. In 1929, after a long career in silent movies, she made a sound movie that earned her an Oscar. As the author writes, quote, It is interesting to note that Pickford's Academy Award victory in 1929 was followed by two more Canadian-born actress winners, Norma Shearer in 1930 and Mary Dressler in 1931. This was a remarkable achievement when you consider the thousands of fine actresses from all over the world who were working in Hollywood movies at that time, unquote. In spring of 1933, she made her last film, which was directed by Frank Borzegi, called Secrets. It was not a success. Later on, she announced her retirement from films. In 1935, she divorced Fairbanks, and later on in 1936, she married an orchestra leader-slash-actor called Buddy Rogers. She then went on to fund the motion picture Country Home, and the Motion Picture Relief Fund, which was set up to help older movie performers in financial difficulties. She also provided the funds for a hospital for film actors. 
1951, she had plans for a comeback in a Technicolor movie, but it never got made. In 1976, she made her last appearance at the annual birthday party that had been a ritual at Pickfair since she and Fairbanks had moved in. In 1976, she made her last appearance at the annual birthday party that had been a ritual at Pickfair since she and Fairbanks had moved in. The same year, she was awarded an honorary Oscar for her lifetime of achievements in motion pictures. She died in 1978, and even though her fame came mostly from old silent movies made years ago, she was still famous and remembered by people all over the world, so much so that her death made the headlines of all major papers. Did you ever see old silent movies with images of a lot of cops crammed in a car going 100 miles an hour on a city street chasing after someone? Those were Keystone Cops. Max Sennett is the man who invented this style of comedy called slapstick. He produced the best comedies in the early days of movies. Slapstick comedies were none-too-subtle comedies with lots of chases and people getting custard pies in the face. Now, it's pretty much an exhausted comedy genre, but back then people loved that. As Sennett also became famous for giving roles and opportunities to people like uh, Charlie Chaplin and other actors such as Mabel Norman and Gloria Swanson. In total, Sennett made more than a thousand silent movies, short films of 10 and 20 minutes duration. Some of these uh, short comedies still survive to this day. They can actually be seen right now on YouTube. So here's a short bio of Max Sennett. He was born in Danville, Quebec, outside Montreal. He wanted to be a singer, and so he took lessons. But then the Sennett family moved to Northampton, Massachusetts in 1900 because Sennett's father had better job opportunities there. Uh, Sennett, of course, had to work also, so he chose to work in a foundry, and it turned out that the manager of the foundry was a part-time actor in the local theater. And before he knew it, Sennett was on stage playing all kinds of roles, from comedy to melodrama, and he loved it, and he was good at it, especially at comedy. After appearing in many stage productions, he was spotted by a famous Canadian actress at the time, Mary Dresler. And she was a Broadway star and uh, very popular in another Canadian. She liked him and gave him a letter of introduction to David Belasco, a famous stage director. And Belasco suggested uh, he try burlesque for a while. Uh, burlesque, uh, for, for people who don't know, was a kind of a, a variety show. Uh, for adults, because it had comedians and sketches and satires of politicians and exotic dancers. Later on, strippers. Senate uh, tried it and was in burlesque for a few years. He went back to Belasco, who suggested that he then go to Biograph Movie Studios, uh, since now he had Broadway experience. And one of the filmmakers at the Biograph studio was D.W. Griffith. Uh, Griffith noticed Sennett and gave him roles in films. Sennett uh, sold uh, uh, Griffith more than 100 script ideas, mostly comedy. And in 1910, uh, Griffith pushed him into his first directing job when another director became ill. Uh, Griffith said about Sennett that 
he said there was Senneth's great curiosity about everything to do with motion pictures that made him so indispensable. Senneth would investigate the lighting, he put the sets together, he told other actors how to stay and where to stay, and so on. And it was obvious that he knew what would be funny and what would not. A Griffith uh, cameraman at the time, uh, a man called Billy Bitzer, uh, had been associated with Griffith for a long, long time. And he said he once considered leaving Griffith to go with Senate, and when Senate left Biograph to form his own company. And Bitzer said, he, I was very impressed by the way he coached comedy out of actors who didn't look like they had an ounce of humor in them. It was obvious he was going to be a great director, unquote. But Bitzer at the end remained with D.W. Griffith. So Senate moved to Hollywood and set up his own studio. He bought an old one called Bison Studio in the suburb of Los Angeles. It was pretty basic, and it had once been a grocery store. He removed the old studio sign and put up another one with Keystone Studio on it. And that was the beginning. So once the studio was set up, he issued instructions to everyone. There were certain taboos that must never be broken. You should never make fun of religion, politics, race, or mothers. He said a mother must never get hit by a custard pie. Her daughter, yes, as often as possible. Mother-in-laws are a fair game, but mothers, never. So by that time, Senate had a girlfriend uh, called Mabel Norman. Uh, and that was basically, as they say, their relationship was in full swing, as they say. And one day they saw someone called uh, Charlie Chaplin perform on stage and thought that he would be a good addition to the studio. Obviously, uh, that was before his uh, fame and before he had invented the Tramp character. He was currently in the U.S. performing in vaudeville shows. So they hired him and his salary was $125 a week. A lot of money back then but uh, they saw something in him. Uh, but right there in the book, uh, they say that Chaplin never reached his full potential at Keystone, even though he did create his tramp character there. In later years, Senate said that he had put together the costume of the Chaplin uh, tramp character. As an interesting side note, Chaplin said that Senate did not create the tramp costume. He even said that he, Chaplin, did not create the, that costume either. The basic tramp costume was similar to one that an old actor called Fred Kitchen had used in a stage show that Chaplin had been in, and he got permission from this actor to copy his costume. The mustache was actually an idea from a director called Del Lord, another Canadian, by the way. After a while, the little tramp became famous for Chaplin, of course. And Chaplin said that he paid Kitchen, the old actor, an annual sum of money for the rights to the costume. And says Chaplin, I wouldn't have done that if Senate had created that costume. So Senate liked to embellish his life and his work. Uh, but this one about him creating Chaplin's costume, that was wrong. Senate, as I said, became famous for his Keystone Cops, named after the studio, and he said that he tried to put Chaplin in the cop's uniform on his first day, but he didn't seem to fit in with the rough and tumble of the cops, so he didn't use him a second time. And then Chaplin, in his autobiography, said, I was never in a Keystone cop outfit. 
I mean, he was there in 1912, but the cops didn't exist until 1913. So another Senate tall tale, I guess. The first Keystone cop film was called The Bangville Police. Quote, it's a funny thing. I remember it was being made, but I didn't find it funny, unquote, Chaplin says. He says that by the time he was nearing the end of his one-year contract with Senate, he had developed his own tram character, which uses subtlety, not slapstick. Quote, I can never say I was anything other than bored with slapstick, unquote, says Chaplin, which is a bit strange to say considering the beginnings of Chaplin. Uh, that is one of the things that Senate is at least famous for, I mean, having Chaplin work for him and give him a start. He employed a lot of uh, later on famous actors and gave them their start. One of them was Mary Dresler, uh, who was still just a stage star. Uh, she was the one that gave uh, Senate his start. Her career, as they say, was fading. So in 1913, Max Senate repaid his debt to her. He wanted to make a movie out of one of Dresler's hit called Tilly's Nightmare and so wanted to sign her. So he talked to her on the phone and he got nowhere. And then he said to her that he owed his entire career to her. And he reminded her about how they met in Northampton, Massachusetts. So the movie eventually got made and it was renamed Tilly's Punctured Romance. It cost, according to Senate, $180,000 to film. It was a huge success and made actually more than half a million dollars. And it launched Mary Dresler on a film career that only ended when she died in 1934. Another actor that Senate helped was Gloria Swanson, who was big in movies later on. Cinephiles will know her from Billy Wilder's movie called Sunset Boulevard, and she was the old actress in that movie. Uh, but she actually started at Max Senate Studios. Uh, there's also another one called Fatty Arbuckle, a comedian in his own right, but unfortunately he's now known for a sordid sex trial involving him and a young actress. So Senate had a major influence in the early days, as we can see from all these people who worked for him and who got their start at his studio. But at the end of 1917, the Senate decided to sever all connections with Keystone so he came by an agreement with his partner so that he would have the sole ownership of the actual Keystone studio. He now took down the Keystone sign and put up another one with his own name, Max Senate Comedies. In 1917, Senate was probably one of the wealthiest men in California. And he said, quote, My accountant tells me I am worth about $12 million and I own two hotels, a movie theater, and two studios, unquote. And the Keystone Studios was making a million dollar a year profit with all taxes paid. So going back to his girl, Mabel Norman, who was not just his girl, she was also an actress in her own right. She made movies at Senate Studios, of course, and that made her into one of the most popular actresses in the country. As Senate said, quote, Fan mail came in from all over the world, and secretaries were kept busy 10 hours a day answering their queries and mailing out photographs. Of course, she couldn't sign every one of those photographs herself, so we hired an ex-con, a forger, to do nothing else but sign her name. 
That worked well until he began to work overtime, forging Mabel's name and my name on company checks he had stolen, unquote. Uh, the Senate and Norman romance was on and off, and sometimes they were fighting and sometimes not. Sometimes she would arrive at the studio the next day with a black eye. Like most actors, she thought her success was all due to her talent only, so she pushed for more artistic freedom from Senate. And maybe to make up for things, Senate announced he was setting up a completely independent company for her to be called the Mabel Norman Picture Company. Senate gave her that artistic freedom that she wanted so much in her next movies, but then again, those movies were less and less successful. Senate, determined not to lose her, found a script he thought would fit her and spent $500,000 on a movie, a huge sum at that time to spend on a single movie. Unfortunately, Mabel Norman by that time had split with Senate. Uh, she got involved with another man who was supposedly a drug dealer. One day that man was found dead and Norman was a suspect. A long investigation cast a shadow over her and her career was ruined. She died in 1930 after a long illness, said to be due to a drug addiction. The $500,000 movie that Senate had made for her was shelved, and Senate went bankrupt. That movie was eventually released years later, and was actually a success, but by that time, Senate didn't own the rights to it, so he made no money from the film. And after that, Senate continued to work in movies, but he worked for other people. He didn't have his own studio anymore, and he wasn't making his own movies. In 1937, Senate got an honorary award from the Academy. By the 50s, he was out of sight. Then something strange happened. The author of the book, Charles Foster, met Senate with a friend. After drinking too much, Senate said he had something to get off his chest. He had killed Taylor, the man Norman had been with. Why? they asked him. Because, he said, he, Taylor, was a homosexual and stole Norman from me by giving her drugs. Then he fell asleep, and when he woke up, he didn't remember saying anything. The confession was dismissed by friends and family, since Senate had a reputation for making up all kinds of stories, so nobody knows if it was true. Early in the 60s, when he was in his 80s, he went to the motion picture country home, a place dedicated to taking care of elderly movie people, and this is where he died a few months later. At his funeral services, one of his friends placed a custard pie on his casket, a fitting memorial for Mac Senate. If you ever find yourself watching Hollywood movies from the 40s, Take a look at the credits at the beginning and look further at the sound recording credit. Chances are you will see the name Douglas Shearer over and over again. Not only was he the main sound guy for lots of early sound movies, he was also a fine technician who improved sound technology over the decade. All of his technical achievements earned him loads of Oscars, more so than most Canadians who worked in Hollywood. He was the brother of Norma Shearer, 
a movie star in her own right, back in the Saad movie days. Outside of movies, he accomplished a lot of technical things that were not known at the time, some to do with radar technology. So here's a short bio of Douglas Shearer. Born in Montreal in 1899, he had an aptitude for math and wanted to be an electrical engineer. In 1914, war broke out, but Douglas got the flu that was roaming around and couldn't go. Meanwhile, his father had run into financial difficulties, so Douglas had to work to support his family. He ended up using his knowledge of electricity, acquired at home, to work for a local electrical company. He ended up using his knowledge of electricity acquired at home to work for a local electrical company. He had first acquired experience with electricity when his father, seeing that he had an, a special talent, had built for him a room in the basement of the house for him to experiment with it. When he also acquired an interest in photography, his father built him a studio and darkroom in the back of the house. Later on, he got into McGill University, even though he had dropped out of high school to work. And Douglas had two sisters, Norma and Atoll. Norma was interested in acting. She convinced the family to move to New York to further her career. After a stint in New York, Norma Shearer ended up in Hollywood. She caught Irving Talberg's eye and got a contract with MGM Studios. And, of course, Talberg at the time was running MGM. Meanwhile, Douglas was still working in Montreal and decided to visit his sister in Hollywood. As was usual in those days, uh, when he was in Hollywood, he got an invitation to a party given by Talberg. At that party, he met Jack Warner of Warner Brothers Studio. After talking about his interest in the film business, he was given a job in the prop department of Warner Brothers. In his spare time, Douglas hung around MGM, where his sister worked, where Talberg encouraged him to try and improve a movie camera's functions. Long story short, he ends up at MGM, where it is his job to experiment with lighting, film, cameras, and anything he wanted to. And remember, he did have knowledge of photography since his early days. And this was in 1925. So since he is a technical guy, I'm going to give an example of his technical know-how. So just bear with me. In that time, sound films were rare as the technology was primitive. This was the time before Warner Brothers had made The Jazz Singer that started the movie sound revolution. There was no dominant sound technology at the time. Various inventors were working on their own movie sound technology. Shearer convinced Thalberg that he could produce a movie trailer with sound to advertise a movie called Slave of Fashion. No one had done that before. So without going into too many technical details, what he did was to record the actor's speech in the trailer on an old-fashioned, back then anyway, vinyl disc. So the actor was dubbing their lines on the vinyl disc, after filming the scene with the dialogue. So remember back then there were no boom mics and mics, microphones were primitive and could not be used on the film set. So after filming the scenes and making sure they spoke their lines clearly, in the sense that the camera could see their lips as they spoke, the dialogue was recorded on vinyl discs. 
In the movie theater, the film was shown with a record player to play the dialogue alongside the film projector. The synchronization between the two was done with a 10-second music lead, which gave the cue as to when to start the film for the projectionist. It was easy, but you still needed personnel to sync the disc, and there weren't many in those days that could do that. His solution to that problem was simple. Give the disc soundtrack to a radio station that would play the disc at a predetermined time. So, all that was needed in the theater was to install radio receivers and good speakers in, in the movie theater. So one source of sound, the radio station, could be used in the 70 movie theaters that were showing the movie trailer. So, with this setup, there was no need to worry about the sync since it was done in one place, not in 70 movie theaters. No need for other new technology in the theaters, since he was using already known and predictable radio technology, so everything was controllable and predictable. The trailer with sound was a big success, since few people had ever seen a movie with any kind of sound. The only problem was that this soundtrack was only for the movie trailer. When people went to see the actual movie that the trailer advertised, they were really disappointed, since they had expected the whole film to be in sound, and so people booed. A few years later, Shearer was made director of sound research for MGM. In 1928, Talberg married Shearer's sister, Norma. Going back to sound research, uh, Shearer's idea for sound on film was to put it on a magnetic strip next to the image, but back then it was a problem on how to get that done. He continued his research in sound, and in anticipation for the inevitable coming of sound film, he designed something called a sound stage. This simply was a movie studio built with soundproof walls, which would hide the noise from outside while filming movies inside the studio. Also, movie cameras in those days were noisy, since they were designed in the days when there was no sound recording, so Shearer soundproofed the movie cameras to be less noisy. He and his team at MGM finally solved the problem of putting the sound next to the image. And remember, Back in those early days of sound, the film image and the soundtrack were always separate, and there was, a, of course, a problem of synchronization. This was finally solved using what was called an optical soundtrack. And this was a soundtrack right next to the image that played at the same time as the image was projected. In 1930, the first Oscar ever given for best sound went to Douglas Shearer. Later on, Shearer was named Director of Technical Research at MGM. This gave him total control over all the studio's scientific and tech work from cameras, labs, and sound. In 1935, he won two Oscars, one for sound recordings of a musical, the other for research and development in a method for automatic control of film cameras and recording machines. Despite the advancements in sound recording for movies, the sound heard in movie theaters was not adequate, so Douglas devised a two-speaker system that made music come out of one speaker and voices out of the other. This system was improved upon over the years and was still in use 40 years after he died. This sound system setup won him his fourth Oscar at the 1936 Academy Award. 
On top of all that, as if it wasn't enough, he later created the first sound mixer used in film recordings. A mixer is a device that enables the editing of multiple audio tracks, such as FX, dialogue, music, and so on, to be mixed down to one track to be put on film, since the film strip can only hold one track. Again, in 1937, Shearer won two more Oscars, one for tech achievement in sound and another for inventing a new camera drive system. Again, in 1941, he devised a fine-grained film that gave greater clarity and crispness to the image. This gave him another Oscar. But here it changes. Uh, Shearer was not heard of much between the years 1943 and 1945 during World War II. It turns out that uh, Winston Churchill had written a letter to Shearer asking for help to deal with some technical problems regarding radar. Shearer asked American President Roosevelt for an okay to do this, and with his blessing, ended up at a secret location where he used his many talents to perfect a radar system. Years later, it was revealed that his radar research had continued at a site close to L.A. well into the 50s. Using his knowledge of radar and sound, he invented a device that allowed the U.S. to determine when and where nuclear explosions were taking place anywhere in the world. And, so the book says, the principles of his findings are still in use today. Back in Hollywood, yet again, he received three Oscars for three films that he had worked on. In the late 50s, CinemaScope was a big thing, but it wasn't all that perfect. Three film cameras had to film the image, and then three projectors had to show the image at the same time. Those three projectors were not always aligned, so that the big image had lines where the images met. So he devised a system to produce a large image with only one camera and one projector. His invention, known as Camera 65, brought him a 12th and final Oscar. In 1968, he retired and was not seen in public again. He died in January 1971. The New York Times gave his passing 15 inch of space on its front page, an honor usually reserved for giants of industry, politics, and of course, Hollywood actors. A rarity for a technician. That's the end of episode 5. I hope you found it interesting at the very least. I wanted to talk about that side of Hollywood because it rarely gets talked about and it's something that is probably unknown in Hollywood itself and by lots of so-called critics and scholars. It's interesting because some famous Hollywood actors of that time were known to be from other countries, like Greta Garbo. Canadians, on the other hand, blended in like comedians. But the real point in all of this, and the reason for doing this episode, is that if Hollywood had to rely only on American talent for its success, it would have gone out of business a long time ago. Next episode will be about the early days of Hollywood itself, from the beginning of movies to about the late 40s. Pretty much the same period of time as my previous podcast about early Canadian film. I'll try to keep it short, but I'm not promising anything. 
If you have any comments about this podcast, you can reach the NFP at nfpcan at protonmail.com. That's nfpcan at protonmail.com. Bye for now. Bye for now.